Chapter 7 Reginald had all the attributes of a successful schoolboy, highly respected prefect, and future scion of the intellectual empire of the West. He had almost no inner life, and so no hesitations, no conflicts, no doubts. Everything was unconscious, everything assumed. He had all the fate of defenses disguised as instincts. Tom, on the other hand, was often quite racked with doubt. His relationship to rules, for instance, unlike Reginald's, was complex. One day, at boarding school, Tom vaulted the iron fence over to the sanatorium to retrieve an errant soccer ball, and on return had been met by a grim-faced group of prefects. His brother lurked in the background. boy, Tom!' said Edward, the head prefect, a fresh-faced boy of glassy, soulless perfection. "'Not many new boys have the guts for that kind of move.' "'Um, thanks,' said Tom, rolling the ball in his grimy hands. "'Against the rules, of course, so you'll have to take your licks, but we can all admire a renegade. Cheers!' Tom took a step backwards. "'Well, I shan't do it again.' "'I'm quite convinced of that,' smiled Edward. That is what we prefects are all about. It's why we patrol, to ensure that no one does anything wrong twice. The Empire is built on daring and obedience, Tom, added Reginald. You have the first, now you must learn the second. Come on, then, said Edward, leaning forward and pinching Tom's earlobe painfully. They surrounded Tom and marched him up to the headmaster's office, and he had to wait outside while they made their report. After a few minutes, Tom was called in. The headmaster was a deity of the old empire, with a pale face, jug ears, a high, broad forehead, and delicately thinning, colorless hair. "'Sit down, Tom,' said the headmaster. The prefects left the office as he passed. Reginald pinched the flesh on Tom's hip savagely, almost making him cry out. Tom said nothing, though. He knew the rules." It was only honourable to squeal down the chain of command. So, Tom, you took it upon yourself to retrieve this football, which I would actually appreciate you leaving in the hallway. Tom got up, put the football outside, came back, and sat down again. The headmaster stared at him blankly for a moment, then said, This is your first transgression, so we shall have to have a little chat about it. It is my understanding that you, in fact, know that it was against school rules to go over the sanatorium fence. Tom tried to speak, then swallowed and tried again. Yes, sir, I did. The headmaster leaned forward. He seemed very tired, which in Tom's short experience was always the first sign of impending violence from authority. But you went ahead anyway. Explain. I... Tom paused. Some part of his brain knew that he was supposed to come up with some sort of story, something like youthful enthusiasm, a desire to finish the football game and bring honor for his team. That's what Reginald would do, he thought. Well, Reginald would never go over the fence anyway. He would get some younger boy to go over for him. But that part of his brain never seemed to work very well. He did not have that kind of energy, the energy to create and sustain a self-serving fiction. I disagree with the rule, sir, he said. The headmaster stared again, then rubbed his eyes. I see. 
And are there any other rules with which you disagree? Tom frowned, surprised to be asked. Could this be a chance for justice? Yes, sir. Yes. Ah, please, gestured the headmaster. Enlighten me. Tom nodded, pursing his lips. Well, we always line up alphabetically, by last name, then first, so I'm always behind my brother. I think it should be reversed every second time. Go on. Well, the tuck shop is only open for two hours a day, when the upper boys are out of class, so the new boys never get to it on time. So the upper boys end up selling sweets to us for a lot more money. And it's hard to wear garters on our socks when it's very hot out. And choir boys should get cushions when visitors come to listen, because sometimes we're sitting for two hours or more. And we need more songbooks. Some of the pages have been torn out to make paper airplanes, I guess. And sometimes some of us can't sing because... We don't have the words or music, and the new boys are always stuck next to the organ, and it's so loud we can't even hear ourselves, and I'm deaf in one ear for hours afterwards, especially after Easter. And the headmaster held up his hand. Tom stopped instantly. Tell me this, young Mr. Spencer, do you know what the word cause refers to? The some Something that brings an effect about? Actually, yes, more or less correct. However, its use as an abbreviation for the term because indicates a thoroughly callous and lower-class attitude towards the king's English. Scarcely the sort of thing we are fighting for, eh? Yes, sir. The same could be said for the word especially, which, despite your usage, actually does have a first syllable. Sorry, sir. As for your other issues, I will tell you a story before administering your punishment. When I was a young man in the Boer War... I raised some objections similar to yours about matters of dress. Shoes, in particular. Mine were very hot. I suggested softer shoes in warmer weather. My commanding officer took me at face value and provided me with the shoes I requested and then asked me to march around the compound for ten hours straight. The shoes gave out just before I did. And then I understood. I kept the book of army rules in my chest pocket for the remainder of the war. I still keep it with me. The headmaster pulled out a small black book from the chest pocket of his crisp shirt and handed it to Tom. Tom fingered a deep hole in the front. The headmaster's voice sharpened. That hole, young man, comes from a bullet which was stopped by my army rule book. And that is when I finally appreciated that rules, even if you do not agree with them, can save your life. Do you understand? Tom frowned, touching the bullet hole. He raised his head, then lowered it again. What if the bullet had been two inches to the left or right? Would that make rules useless? He opened his mouth, then closed it again. He felt a terror beyond measure. He looked up at the headmaster. I understand the story, sir, he said finally. The headmaster nodded, took the book back, tucked it into his pocket, and stood up. A cane was leaning against his desk. Now, my boy, I want you to bend over and take your punishment like a soldier, and remember that rules must be obeyed even without understanding. It is the very foundation of our society, of civilization itself. Tom did as he was told, and the headmaster took position behind him. There was a slight whiffy swish and then the cane slashed into his backside. The pain, 
It was as if a spiderweb of fiery acid raced through his very innards, branding his bones. The headmaster grunted with the effort, and Tom closed his eyes. There were twelve blows in all. Tom refused, refused, refused to pass out. Reginald was waiting for him in the hallway outside. "'I'm to take you to the nurse,' he said, grabbing Tom's elbow. "'Slow, slow,' gasped Tom, tears coursing down his cheeks. "'Can't have our young rebels getting infected, can we now?' asked Reginald. "'No football for a while for you, eh, Tommy?' "'You bastard,' groaned Tom as Reginald yanked him down the stairs. "'Now, now,' grinned Reginald. "'That's your mother you're talking about.' When they went home that summer, the summer of 1918, the last summer of the Great War, they found their mother in deep disarray. The house was clean as always, Catherine the nanny saw to that. Food was delivered and prepared on time, the cook saw to that, but Ruth kept to bed with a nameless illness that seemed to hollow out the dark heart of the home. She was pale, thin, listless, exhausted. This was a great terror to her boys. Mothers cannot fail without taking the souls of their sons with them. In family legend, Tom had always been her favorite, and he was very gentle with her. Reginald, who was forever considered a reincarnation of all that Ruth found objectionable in her husband, either kept his distance or stomped into her room with a great show of exasperation and boredom. To save her nerves, Ruth sent him to spend a month with family friends in Dorset. After that, for Tom, the summer became very strange. It was like living in an anthill. The workers all crawled and struggled with giant leaves, building and feeding and protecting a nest which contained nothing but a stagnant queen who seemed dead to the world, to her family, her own heart. His mother sweated through the still heat of an English summer. Tom went to sleep thinking of her, dreamed about her, and awoke to further imaginings of what she might need, what strange combination of herbs, teas, and jokes might rejuvenate her. He went down to the kitchen first thing and made tea and toast. He would bring it up the four flights of stairs to his mother's bedroom, his arms aching with the strain of not spilling. Entering her bedroom was an act of will. He sometimes felt nauseous. She had lost so much weight that the covers barely rose above her skeleton. It was a bed, with a head, nothing more. Her hair was bushy, wild. The maids could do nothing with her, but sometimes Tom could convince her to let him wash it, and he did so slowly, massaging her loose scalp, dreaming that the soap suds could slither down through her scalp into her brain and wash clean the stain that pinned her down. It was a summer full of weak weepiness and stale sentimentality. An allergic pollen seemed to hang in the air, stinging the eyes into useless tears. Ruth would sometimes lever herself onto her elbows. They creaked audibly, and Tom was terrified that they would crack suddenly like wet, pressed sticks. She chewed on her toast forever. Crumbs would spill onto her chin, but she would not wipe them, and Tom was afraid to. He tried brushing them off with his own chin when he kissed her. He read to her. She resisted any news of the war by turning her head and emitting shuddering sobs. She smelled of sweat and twice blood. 
The maids washed her every week. Tom was too terrified of that, of navigating her flesh. He felt it would be an endless desert that would wither him, dry him out, leaving his bones beyond use for vultures. The doctor came. Tom heard the words, hysteria, hypochondria, melancholia, neurasthenia. But they sagged under the weight of the old man's indifference. They brought no prop to her lassitude. Ruth did not resist her youngest son's entrance or respond to his readings or stories or questions, but she did sometimes moan when he crept away, when he thought she might be asleep, and he would freeze at the door, his heart pounding. He became frantic. He wanted to give her something, carve off half or more of his staunch young heart, give her blood or marrow or hope. In early August, three weeks after Reginald's departure to Dorset, the monologues began. For Tom, these speeches were the hardest part of her illness. In his mind's eye, they bent him backwards, almost double like a sapling in a hurricane. There is so much that is gone, she would whisper, her back to him, her fist working back and forth before her mouth as if she were trying to weakly punch her own words. Your grandfather got a sunburn that was so bad he needed help putting on his shirt. Oh, when was that? 1883? I was 12, perhaps. My eldest brother loved whales. He sang underwater. It was so funny you could hear him if you lay still. He had three moles on his thigh, a perfect, perfect triangle. He loved a girl called Teresa. She lives in Scotland now. My middle brother, Daniel, could whistle almost every bird sound you ever heard. In winter, he was so loud, we said, he could wake the buds on trees. My my younger brother, Wesley, he opened his mouth only to eat or say yes and no. I never even saw him yawn. He didn't like his teeth. Everything is in ashes in the air over France. Their lives were like water going down a drain. Nothing is left, nothing except what I remember. I am too full. I think about them all the time. Father was a baritone, Stephen a tenor. He loved to sing, but thought he sounded like a girl when he spoke. Wesley was a bass, but he hated to sing. They had to force him. He sang almost without opening his mouth. Oh, God, they sounded so sweet. When I was in bed, I could hear them practicing in the music room. I never got to hear a song all the way through. They would start and stop and argue and start again. Sometimes it was one verse for an hour or more. I went mad. Unseen by his mother, Tom would place his hands over his eyes. The wallpaper seemed too vivid. The painted flowers seemed to be growing before his vision. Father was a fair man. He wanted no stories. He judged us by our sincerity. Wesley was a great pretender, probably because his mouth was always closed. He was the strongest. They wrestled always after singing, like they wanted to be manly again. Wesley won most times. Stephen would wait until... Daniel had tired Wesley out and then win sometimes. Wesley was a sulker when he lost. He always made up excuses. Stephen was the best at Latin, but Daniel had the best memory. He could do pages and pages on Cicero without skipping a syllable. Ruth's voice broke. They wanted war. They had been waiting for it. They cared nothing for business. It was like cricket, Stephen said, where only one team walks off the pitch. Wesley used to write to me about crickets. 
They always kept him up as a child, but not in France. He was too tired. There were no crickets after a while. He missed them. He did not think it was a good omen that there were no more crickets. If insects could not live there, what chance did he have? He never said that, but I knew. I think they all knew. Eight days before he died, Daniel wrote down the names of everyone he wanted me to remember him to. It was six pages, small writing. His memory. Father gave me lots of advice in his last letter. Carry on, he said. Do not mourn the past. It was like he had already taken up residence there, like being underwater and watching the bottom of a boat sail away. Love, Quentin, he said, as if I needed reminding. Which I did. I do. I do. And the boys? Her fist tightened and tried to enter her rambling mouth. And I carry everything inside, everything that they were, and sometimes everything that they were going to be, everything. I am a museum of broken history, the only visitor. All these details, all gone. I could tell them all to everyone and never get it quite right. I want to go back and write everything down, but I forget even now, more things come faster than I could say. And it's like there's this other world, this world of before. And it's the only place I want to go. I only want to talk to dead soldiers. I want to be held by... by corpses. She cried. And that's for me, too. For my life. All my details will be gone. Water down a spout. Nothing important is ever kept. We all go to ash. To the sky. I don't want to knit anything or clean or read. It all goes. The past is the only place we are safe. Memories are the only future. And she would continue sometimes all afternoon until her voice was cracked and faded like old porcelain under a shelf. And the weight of all this history hung heavily on Tom's narrow frame like wide icicles on a little tree. In mid-August, he brought her a bird. He brought her a bird, and Reginald came back. During one of her rambles, Ruth had expressed a feverish desire to be a bird, to be able to fly away. Walking in the garden afterwards, Tom had found a little brown thrush hopping in circles, dragging its wing. He had caught it and brought it to his mother. He knew she would cry, but the depth of the torrent was unexpected. Ruth held the bird in her hands, weeping so hard that Tom was afraid her skin would collapse inward into dry raisin furrows. Milk and bread, she sobbed. Tom went to get these and watched as his mother dipped the milk-soaked bread into the yawning red beak of the thrush. Cheep, cheep, she whispered in a high falsetto, staring through unblinking eyes. Tom could scarcely bear it. The bird did get better over the next few days, but then Tom was awakened by a high keening sound and ran upstairs to his mother's room. She lay on her side, facing the wall, and the cage he had fashioned out of balsa wood was empty. Tom ran around, calling for the bird. The cook informed him that Reginald had taken the bird out into the garden. Outside, Tom found Reginald and Elizabeth, the pretty daughter of their neighbors. Reginald was cooing at the bird. Elizabeth stood about ten feet away. As he watched, Reginald cried out, Fly, birdie! 
and threw the thrush at Elizabeth. She caught it, almost snatching it from the air, and then took a step backwards and threw it back at Reginald. Stop! Stop! shouted Tom, running forward. Reginald grabbed the bird, then threw it back at Elizabeth. What's the matter? he asked. What are you doing? cried Tom. Elizabeth laughed. We're teaching the bird to fly. She threw it back at Reginald that shot past him and crashed into the grass, rolling awkwardly before flopping to a stop. Now look, cried Reginald. You made me miss it. Tom ran over to the bird which lay on its side, its beak frozen open. He picked it up gently. Its head lolled and its tiny weight rolled in his hand like a little bag of broken sticks. It almost flew that time, said Elizabeth, coming up. What, is it not doing well? asked Reginald. They have to learn how to fly, otherwise releasing them is just cruel. Ignoring them, Tom turned and walked into the kitchen. The cook glanced up. That the bird? he asked, squinting at Tom's cupped hands. Tom nodded. Bring him upstairs, then don't muck about with him here. I think... What? asked the cook, standing by his side. Tom opened his hands. One little claw twitched and curled. Oh, dear, said the cook. That doesn't look good. Go on, then. Take him up to your mother. Maybe she can help. Tom's breath hissed between his teeth. No. Up to you, shrugged the cook, returning to his cutting board. Reginald and Elizabeth came into the kitchen. It's fine, said Reginald, glancing at Elizabeth. Just tired. Tom shook his head slowly. Oh, give him here, cried Reginald, snatching the bird from Tom's hands. We'll put him back in his cage. Wait here, Liz he said, turning and running up the stairs, two at a time. Almost against his will, Tom forced himself to climb the stairs. In her bedroom, his mother was sitting fully upright in bed. Give me the bird, she said to Reginald, who was holding the thrush in one hand while trying to open the cage door with the other. It's fine, mother. He's just tired. Now, she shouted suddenly. Both children flinched. Reginald took two steps toward the bed and rolled the bird into his mother's outstretched hands. She pulled the creature close to her chest and lowered her head, her hair falling forward, obscuring the bird like a little waterfall. Cheep, cheep, she cried, stroking its lolling head. There was a faint squeak from the bird. Cheep, cheep, echoed their mother. The house seemed unnaturally still. Even the cook's knife had stopped its endless chopping. Cheep, cheep. There was no answer. Ruth lay her head back against the headboard. Her hands opened slowly, and the dead thrush's wings unfolded against her pale skin. Tom stared at Reginald, who gazed in pure hatred at their mother. Chapter 8 After that summer, Ruth's life seemed to be a parabola without a downward limit. She had been raised by giants, and those giants had been yanked skyward never to return, and she fell into their footprints, into their trenches, and now wandered lost in the red mud of their endings. Depression is not the worst thing because the violence is always self-inflicted, and to suffer wrong is always better than to do wrong. Ruth was depressed. 
Hers was a naivete cut so deep that it never healed over. She had been a light, airy, challenging young woman who laughed gaily and flew from depth and was fascinated by Quentin from their first meeting. Before the war, Quentin was a lightning bolt of unconsidered energy. He moved through evening parties like a tumbleweed of dry, intense goodwill, pressing hands, remembering everyone's job, everyone's name, everyone's children's names. He was an empty hotel peopled by the details of other people's lives. He was a two-handed handshaker, and occasionally he would clasp both hand and forearm, which made the recipients of his goodwill tingle with goosebumps. Before the war, Ruth was pale, slender of waist, and puffy of face. During the war, she moved with the languorous grace of the depressed insomniac. She had been consumed by the vanity of mourning and all the attentions paid to the catastrophically forlorn. And then, in 1918, when it was all over, in her heart of hearts she missed the war, the tension, the days organized by scanning newspapers, collecting metal and being afraid. She still read the newspaper, but was bored by the small news of fiscal policies and peacetime crimes. She wanted, almost needed, a world convulsion to bring her out of herself. Only an earthquake could spit her out of her own grave. Quentin, for his part, returned to a wife he no longer recognized. Her capacity to become excited by clothing, by the petty actions of others, by a new source or fabric, her delight in all the transient distractions of the senses had all vanished, and she was now like a stiff ghost. Her heart was slack, but her muscles never relaxed. There was the great question, of course, of how long they should refrain from making love out of respect for the millions of dead. Quentin felt that the business of life was worth getting on with. The more who had died, well, the more should be seeded to replenish the race and allow the names of the fallen to rise again. But that was not part of his wife's thinking. After six months, they took a few stabs at it, but Ruth just went through the motions, and he felt too angry to continue. She was inert and would not talk about it, and it quickly became too horrible to contemplate. And Quentin could take that rejection. He thought, sex is a young man's game, and like Socrates, I should look forward to freedom from the demon of lust. Besides, he did not wish to resuscitate Ruth for his own sake, but for the sake of his son's. He had great respect for Catherine, the nanny, who lay like a great warm lagoon at the centre of his household, but she was scarcely sophisticated enough to bring the boys to fruition. They needed language, art, and the lighter play of delicate feelings. Catherine, to him, represented all the untamed passions of the lower classes, whose feelings raged like wild paint against a white canvas. His sons needed more delicate brushes, a lighter touch, and more subtle colours. This was the province of his wife. He could teach them about the world, the male world of still faces, deep motives, soft alliances, and silent stabbings, but navigating that world was impossible without delicacy of feeling. He could speak of that world, describe its rules, but steering through its infinite shoals required that his wife elevate their hearts from Catherine's simple land of tough fables to something more artistic, more elevated, more slippery, more dangerous. No one fears men who wear their hearts on their sleeves. 
He was afraid that they would grow up to be blubberers, panty-waist, sentimental men who could move others in an extremity but were never respected by them. But Quentin could not rouse his wife, and so their children remained always just beyond her grasp. That was not the end of the world for Reginald, because Quentin had great affinity for him, but there was something very fundamental about Tom that Quentin was unable to grasp. Something self-contained, alien, and threatening. A deep river he would be lost in, in an instant, should he ever step in. Tom grew up keeping his distance from Reginald. They had little interaction at school. Reginald had a circle of sharp, well-dressed, resolutely unathletic friends. On holidays, Reginald went to visit his friends for long periods once he spent almost the whole summer on an estate near Cheltenham. When Reginald was away, Quentin would spend weekdays in London, only returning to the country house mid-morning Saturday, almost always with a friend or five in tow. Tom liked staying at home during the summer, lazing on a lawn chair, reading or playing the recorder. He loved turning his face to the sun and letting its light paint the purple skin of his eyelids with bright neon portraits of, well, nothing at all, really, except the joy of heat and light. In the evenings, Tom would spend time with Catherine, helping her in the kitchen, reading her a story, or showing her a model airplane he had made. They often ate together, just the two of them. Reginald's contempt for his mother was one of the icier bedrocks of the household. Ruth felt it deeply, woundingly. It was one of the few family feelings which could skewer through the numbness of her depression. They had not touched in years. It was almost as if Reginald thought she was unclean somehow or contagious. He made little secret of it. His hatred was strong, deep, pure. It was hard to say just when it had started. He had pulled away early. He always twisted out of both Catherine and Ruth's embraces. As he grew up, he sighed whenever his mother talked at dinner or made loud clattering sounds with his cutlery. Once, when they were in Harrods, the department store in London, she had mislaid her purse briefly, and her voice began to rise and tremble as she tried to picture how they would get home. Reginald had looked up at her, his pale, green eyes watery with contempt. "'You're only embarrassing yourself, mother,' he had said slowly. Clearly, and all the remaining afternoon, the sentence had lashed in stinging waves at her heart. "'What can one say?' After an utterance like that, he's only eight and already so able to wound. Ruth attempted to rally. Perhaps Reginald hated her because she was too easy on him, so she began to ask him to do more chores, run errands, but he proved maddeningly inert. If she came in to ask him for something more than twice, he would sigh, not looking up from his reading, and chant, Yes, Mom, no, Mom, three bags full, Mom. Ruth would stand above him, behind him, in his blind spot, afraid of her rage, fighting mightily against the desire to strike her eldest son, because it was not about striking him once as a correction, but she felt that he wound up her muscles so tight that once she started she would not stop flailing at him until her nails met bone. So Ruth began to avoid 
Her eldest son and an awful inner dialogue began to emerge in her head, joining the great chorus on her endless bedridden roundabout. He is the child. I am the parent. I cannot abandon him just because he displeases me. I cannot turn away. He knows not what he does. But how am I supposed to love the hate-filled little goblin? It would be intolerably hypocritical. But I cannot ask him what the matter is, or what I have done, because he thinks me so hopeless that I must be coddled and never know the truth of my infirmities. For what on earth are those infirmities? Does he know? Or is he just hoping that, in the face of his scorn, I will manufacture them for myself? The little brute! How did he get so good at this? Certainly he has not his father's patience. Quentin listens to my concerns, even if he doesn't share them. I should get some female friends. But what would I have to say? I should be terribly dull. Everything I have is in this house. And little Tommy is my own secret heart. Catherine thinks I am malingering. I know, I see. The way she snaps the sheets, her one word answers compressed lips. I don't have her grim Protestant endurance. I would put my cares from me if I could, if I knew how. Or even if I knew what my cares were, which seems impossible enough. Dear Lord, I have ennui. Please send me a remedy. Hide it in the lyrics of him, I don't care. But no such sucker will be mine. No one is coming to save me. There is precious little left to save. Oh, my father. And another crying jack would come along, and the house would fall silent, and all hands would stop as the lost daughter cried, high up in the sky of the house. As the whispery crying continued, something would begin to grow in Tom's mind, deep and dark like an oozing of oil at the bottom of the sea. His mother, in her room, just below the roof, sitting there in her bed, staring. Tom would find himself unable to shake this vision and would slowly rise towards her room, where he was sure she awaited him. By the time he was eleven, this journey was almost inevitable. If I do not go to her, he felt she will scarcely last another day. And so he went and developed the more antic and irresponsible parts of his nature in order to wring a rare smile from her thin-lipped face. Her face was a terrible picture. It seemed sometimes as if she were a portrait in reverse, where a portrait has a face on one side and the wall has two holes for nails to hang it from. Ruth's face had two black holes where the eyes should be, and her face hung like a lank sheet between them. But she was not beyond provocation, so Tom would bring all the cuttings of his day to her and attempt to rouse her dying head for one more sip of the deep lake of life. I saw a dog today, said Tom, sitting by her bed and stroking her hand. How the bones rolled like little sticks in silk. And it had only three legs, but it ran so fast I couldn't tell until it slowed down. Why does God give dogs four legs, I wonder, when they can do just as well with three? So they'll have one to spare, murmured Ruth, looking away. Tom felt, rather than saw, her deep skull welling of tears, and went on, a little desperately. And in my aircraft, my new model sop with, there's a little plastic man, and I have to paint him, but he has no eyes. I mean, other than plastic eyes. So I used a hot needle to poke a hole where his eyes are, and that makes him look both deep-seeing and blind at the same time, but there's nothing in the instructions to say what I should do. Ruth shuddered at this, and Tom realized that digging out vision with a needle was not quite the right tack. 
So instead he moved on to a topic, which was sure to rouse his mother just a little. I wonder what Reginald will become. Ruth's eyes flashed distantly like a turning sword in a deep pond. He will be whatever he sets his mind out to be, she said vehemently. I think so, said Tom. He's too clever by half. Do you know that no one at school calls him Reggie? That's something, not even the older boys. Politics, said Ruth. It will be politics. Nothing less, nothing else. Well, added Tom, it will be nothing to do with business at any rate. Business is a filthy game. Look what it has done to your... And here Ruth trailed off. Tom smiled. Reginald has something about him that makes people respect him. He doesn't even try for it. I really think he might save the world, and everyone will send you flowers. Ruth's eyes glazed over again, and Tom frowned, then realized, Oh, that sounds like something the world would do to someone who had died. Next topic. Next topic. Oh, I wish I could juggle. Reginald and his friends are like big hot air balloons. They will all rise together. That's why it's so important that they spend their summers together, so they will know everything about each other when they run England. I'm glad of it. They will be a grand crew, very serious and very grand. Oh, Tom, cried Ruth, throwing her arms around him and pulling him to her. He struggled for a moment, thrown off balance, and then hugged her with all the might of his young frame, aching to infuse her with something... something... The thought flew at him. What is the opposite of morbid? And you will keep the world for me, she whispered, stroking his hair. You will keep me with the world. And then Tom felt that there was another kind of hot air balloon underneath him, and that he was rising with his mother to an unearthly realm where curtains obscured the ground below, and the past rose above them like a great night without stars, to swallow them into nothing. Chapter 9 When Reginald was fifteen, he won a scholarship to study in France for a year. There was great celebration in the family, which Tom was supposed to participate in, despite never having been told about any scholarships himself. As Reginald packed, Tom sat on his bed, picking at balls of lint on the blanket. "'I'll miss you,' he said, a little theatrically. "'It seemed the right thing to say.' "'You'll be fine,' said Reginald briskly. Tom could sense that his brother was terrified that he, Tom, would cry. There was silence for a time. Reginald sighed. "'It will give you the chance to make your own friends at school. Spread your wings, be a good chap, and don't sniffle.' he said sharply, though Tom had not made a sound. "'Will you miss me? Will you miss me?' The thought chased its own tail in Tom's mind, but he was terrified to ask it. He stared out the window, at a tall tree towering over the little wood they used to wage war in. "'I miss those days,' he thought suddenly and felt a lump in his throat. "'Will I never grow up?' "'Please go and ask Mother to make me some tea.' said Reginald, struggling to close his suitcase. Reginald was gone for over a year. Quentin spent a good deal of time travelling for business and visiting Reginald in France. Tom would see the postcards stuck into the corner of the mirror in the front hall and would stare, dumbfounded, at all the fun that was being had in his absence. Skiing, hiking, cathedrals, Brussels even! 
his skin was hot with the endless scalding of young injustice. He could not fight the feeling that he had been left behind as a kind of cork in his mother's throat. He was thrown to her to maul and play with as his brother and father shouted and iced down snowy mountains. Reginald doesn't love Mummy, Tom would think, carrying a tray up the stairs to his mother. Neither does Daddy. And they don't love me either. They want to be far away, and they don't even care if we know it. To Tom's shame, his mother clung to him in a way she never would have dared if either Reginald or Quentin had been home. Before, Quentin spent a good deal of time prying his wife off Tom, but he had recently given up on that task, and now had clearly decided to infuse Reginald with some masculine essence that Tom would not benefit from. Because I am beyond hope, he thought sadly, and so I have been given to Mother to keep her quiet. And it was during this time, this time of darkness and claustrophobic maternal neediness, that Tom's morality deserted him. He had been a moral child, even before he knew two-syllable words. He had lost a treasured pen at school and heard that one had been found and had gone to claim it, but the gold pen was not his, and he had said as much. The teacher was surprised and praised his honesty. He repaid forgotten tuck-shop debts, he was kind to lonely boys. He passed the ball in soccer. But something left him when he entered puberty. All his grand visions and inner purity were washed out of him. Even Catherine could not reach him lost in the shade of his mother. He became idle, dreamy, distracted, dull, and inert. His reading habits regressed to comic books and fairy tales. He played with younger boys until they giggled and rolled their eyes as he approached and he felt too humiliated to continue. He was alone. He began to hate sunrise, getting up, saying good morning. He was exhausted all the time. His mother would not stop talking and he gave up trying to fight her. He nodded when she spoke, no longer pointing out her endless contradictions or trying to get a word in edgewise. He would slouch against a piano, playing minor keys very slowly, until chased outside where he would roam the woods feeling itchy and out of place. Boredom and exhaustion plagued him, and he faced the world with downcast eyes and an endless shrug. He descended to a new pack of companions, town boys who were witless and resentful and wild. They stole from shops, roamed the streets for hours, and performed feats of senseless physical daring. They rode bicycles down steep hills and crossed train-track bridges at night and argued about the name of their club. Tom neglected his pet mouse until it escaped and was seen no more. Tom still pretended to feed it, though, because he was unable to stand his mother's hysteria at the thought of a mouse loose in the house. His school marks dipped a little, but Tom was able to coast on talent. He gravitated towards solitary sports, running and swimming. He slept poorly, turning in his sheets for hours until he looked as if he were wrapped in an enormous white rope. He would stare in despair at his thigh, wishing for a switch 
to make him fall asleep. Sleep would come heavily a few hours before morning, and he would always be jarred into waking by his mother's bright, empty greeting, by her short bursts of morning energy. It seemed that she loved nothing more than to stand by his door and recite long lists of things he had to do before he had even gotten out of bed. And, of course, she would chastise him for taking so long to get out of bed, but he couldn't get up with her in the doorway, could he? So annoying, so annoying. When Reginald finally returned from France, he took a rather dim view of Tom's activities and friends, not to mention his slovenly appearance and poor personal hygiene. He took to giving Tom long lectures. Tom, you must really try and look in the mirror and strive to see yourself as others see you. For instance, you have a stain on your collar and your tie leans to one side. What do you think that says to others? That you don't respect yourself or your appearance. First impressions count for everything. You look like a sullen, uncooperative specimen who would as soon fly at you as give you the time of day. Is that really how you wish to appear? Oh, for God's sakes. Are you crying? I would have thought that by now you would have outgrown such blubbering. The world seemed entirely made of broken glass, and everywhere that Tom turned some essential part of his flesh would be cut. He did not like other people, but could not concentrate when alone. He bought a harmonica and played taps over and over, agonizingly slowly while reading comic books in his room. He envied Reginald's self-discipline, assurance and poise, but he could not rouse himself to take that course. Oh, and then there was the terrible time of the great theft. Reginald had been given ten pounds by an aunt and kept it in a little envelope on his nightstand. Tom wanted to buy a picture book about the Amazon, which cost 45 pence. He had no money and hated asking his mother or father for some. His mother would cry out that she had no money of her own, but was dependent on Quentin, and his father would ask to know what Tom intended to buy. Tom would have to tell the truth because Quentin would require proof of purchase. Quentin would never approve of a grown boy of 14 buying a picture book. What? Tom could imagine him saying. And should we also budget for some coloring crayons for you? So one night Tom took some change from Reginald's envelope and bought the book. He was amazed at how quickly Reginald knew. He had barely settled into his bed. They now had separate rooms at Reginald's insistence when Reginald came in without knocking. Tom's heart thudded painfully. He attempted to cover up the book with his covers, but to no avail. Reginald's face was a cold mask. Tom, where did you get that book from? I... What book? The one on your lap, said Reginald slowly. I... I found it. You found it, repeated Reginald. He came in, closed the door, and pulled a chair up to Tom's bed. Are you sure that you found it? Yes. Let me see it, please. Excuse me, but it's mine, said Tom in a small voice, holding the book tightly. Well, if you found it, it might not be yours then, correct? Give it over. Tom felt hot humiliation. But I really think that Reginald barked. Tom! Tom handed the book over without a word. Reginald flipped the cover closed and glanced at the back, then nodded, his lips compressed. Forty-five pence. Exactly. Reginald settled back in his chair, flicking his hair back from his pale forehead. 
Tom reached to his night table for some chewing gum. Would you like some? He asked, extending his hand. No, said Reginald, his eyes wide at the non sequitur. He cocked his head and stared at Tom. Half surreptitiously, Tom wriggled out from under his covers. It felt better to be a little more out in the open. He heard clatterings from downstairs and suddenly wished that Catherine was in the room with them. She wouldn't damn him for stealing. She would ask him why he stole. Because I have been stolen from, he imagined himself crying back, having no idea what the words meant. His heart hammered, a wet drumbeat of mortal danger. Tom, I want to tell you something, said Reginald finally. You are dangerously close to becoming the kind of boy that nobody likes. The kind of boy that you used to scorn in your better days. Your old friends have just about given up on you. They see you, as we all do, just drifting off into your own little world. And as for your new chums, well, I don't think that I have to say too much about them. They are little more than contemptible rabble. Reginald shrugged. And that is all your choice, of course, because no one else seems to be able to tell you how to live. You scorn good advice and just seem content to to slide down the easy path of slow failure and low companions. Reginald waved a hand. So, such are your evident choices, and you are welcome to them such as they are, his face darkened. But now you are going down quite a different path, and one which I cannot stand idly by and witness without speaking up. Reginald smiled. For all the good it will do. What, what path? asked Tom, striving for defiance but failing utterly. Reginald laughed. Oh, you're very brave now, now that you're cornered. I found it, cried Tom. Oh, please, snapped Reginald, don't insult me. This book costs forty-five pence, and I am, since this morning, missing exactly forty-five pence from my night table. Tom tried to pull the wrapper off his remaining piece of chewing gum, but it had been warmed and the wrapper stuck. He began picking at it. "'So you lost your money,' he said softly. "'It's not my fault.' "'Are you really going to maintain that this is just a coincidence?' asked Reginald, shaking his head. "'I mean, really. "'Are you going to sit there and tell me that the fact that forty-five pence of my money goes missing "'at exactly the same time you claim to find a book worth forty-five pence? "'Wait, before you answer that, answer this. "'Did you go to town this morning?' "'Well, yes. Am I supposed to check with you about that, too? "'Can I not?' "'Yes.' "'Well, you can protest all you like,' interrupted Reginald. "'But the fact of the matter is that you went to town "'and so had the capacity to buy this book. "'Are you still going to claim that you found this book?' "'I did. It was lying on the pavement in a wrapper. "'Do you have the wrapper? "'No, I, I, I threw it out before coming home. "'What did you do in town?' "'I went to the toy shop and looked at the trains. "'Did you go in alone? "'Yes, I'm old enough. Of course you are. "'So if I were to go into town "'and ask Mr. Osgood at the bookshop,' Did my brother Tommy come in here today and buy a book on the Amazon? What do you think he would say? Tom's lower lip stuck out. I don't know what he would say. I'm not Mr. Osgood, am I? Reginald paused, rubbing his face wearily. He leaned forward in his chair, dropping his hands to his lap. And if I were to go to father and tell him of my suspicions, what do you think would occur? You are welcome to go to father, said Tom softly, staring at his gum. You can go to father and mother and everyone and tell them that you think I stole from you and that I am a liar, and you can all drive into town and ask everyone to tell you that I am a thief, and then you will see. 
So you have no problem if I pursue that course? No, no, I don't, said Tom. He felt a strange giddy pressure in his chest. He knew that he was lying, and he knew that Reginald had the power to expose him, and he suddenly felt that it was important to be moral, which he had not felt in a long, long time. And most strongly he felt that telling the truth to Reginald would be the worst thing in the world, that it would blacken his soul. And then, in the next precise moment, he lost an old compass and found a new one at exactly the same time. Perhaps sensing something, Reginald took a sharp breath. I am going to try one more time, Tom. I am going to ask you, and I want you to look me straight in the eye. I am going to ask you if you stole this money from me. Still picking at his gum wrapper, Tom did not raise his head. I don't have to. I already told you. Reginald paused and said, So you refuse to look me in the eye? I've already told you, said Tom, still staring at his gum. I see. Reginald sat back in the chair. Tom could feel his gaze rippling over him in chilly waves. You do realize, said Reginald, that you leave me no choice but to go to father and lay before him all I know about your behavior. You can do what you like, said Tom. Another pause. Last chance, said Reginald. Silence. Reginald jumped out of the chair, startling Tom. Sibling rage hung in the room, vaporizing oxygen, inflating shadows. Reginald's fingers widened and closed repeatedly. All right, he said in a helium breath of pure tension. You have clearly made your choice, but remember this, Tom, in the days to come. I gave you many, many chances to do the right thing, to tell the truth, and to take your punishment like a man. Instead, you have chosen to lie and evade and wriggle, and it is you that will have to live with that. Not I, Tom. Not I. With that, Reginald turned and strode out of the room, slamming the door. Tom turned and curled into himself, pulling the covers tight. Staring at his white wall, he felt a sudden supernatural chill passed through him as if he were enclosed in a giant womb of pure ice. This incident, oddly enough, marked a certain turning point for Tom. Perhaps this was because absolutely nothing came out of it. Reginald might have told their father or gone to the bookshop to check Tom's story, but Tom never knew about it. It was never spoken of again. And there was something liberating in that, something liberating in the fact that Reginald had done nothing, though he had the power to destroy, that he never mentioned it again. A kind of impotence, some sort of punishment that was supposed to be self-inflicted. Perhaps they want me to imagine that they sat up late talking about me, my father and my brother, and could find no way to help me because I am hopeless and beyond help. But Tom could not quite get himself to believe that. Tom felt a certain power slowly seep back into him. He began to feel again and stopped stealing because he was now too terrified of getting caught. Discipline returned bit by bit. He joined team sports and actually did his homework. His early, sunny personality began to reassert itself, and he became more popular. 
the fact that he was growing into a very handsome young man only accelerated his progress. Sadly, however, there was a great chasm between Quentin and Tom, the kind of chasm which is so often the only hope for change within a family. Tom was affectionate more so than anyone in the house except Catherine. His affection spread like a rising river, without restraint, and it had such depth and strength that everyone else in his family took to the trees and raised their skirts and trousers. To Quentin, Reginald had many virtues, and his lack of indiscriminate affection was one of his greatest. The entire purpose of boarding school, in his mind, was to scrub all traces of maudlin emotions out of the future scions of the ruling class. If you retain all those playful little habits of affection, he thought, next thing you know, you're crying at music hall love songs, wandering the old locations of childhood, misting over at the sight of two doves on a branch, and boom, the empire is snatched away, and then where would we be? This last habit of Quentin's drove both of his sons quite mad. He would grind the most absurd conclusions out of innocuous habits, and then smack his knee, lean forward and say, and then where would we be? It is a habit of youth, almost as old as the planet, to have a pathological hatred of rhetorical questions. Every three months, when Reginald would come home from boarding school, Quentin would mentally inspect him, noting with genuine pleasure a new curl of the lip, a new jaw-thrusting opinion, a harsh laugh in regards to the idea of self-rule for the empire, a downward sweep of the hand whenever the Irish question arose, all of the essential elements were falling into place. England had a gift which went unappreciated by the benighted pagan hordes. It was for their own good. Soldiers and diplomats were superior to politicians and capitalists. We guard the frontiers while the English splash in the Brighton Sea. Everyone dislikes British rule, but imagine the chaos if we left. India is the jewel in the empire's crown. Self-rule in time, perhaps, when they have left behind the bloody altars of their painted fathers. This all made sense to Quentin and was much approved. Tom, on the other hand, made very little sense at all. Tom was well-liked, his father thought, but not respected. He was still a blubberer, even into his teams, prone to weeping over sad songs, melancholy plays, a view of a lighthouse through the mist, and anything more than a quarter hour with his mother generally transformed his face into a crumpled mush of wet salt. Tom was brave, Quentin admitted, but seemed utterly unable to choose his battles wisely. Reginald had a natural sense of tactics which seemed completely alien to Tom. In fights at school, Reginald first used his acid tongue, then his friends, his distance, and only in a last resort his own fists, and then suddenly, with neither warning nor mercy. Tom would beat down a bully and then offer to help him back up. The victims of Reginald's aggression generally did not get back up for some time. Tom was also popular with girls, and this was cause for some suspicion. In Quentin's world, only men had real purpose. The purpose of women was largely confined to the production of additional men. As Quentin moved from the world of the army to business, his wife became less and less interesting. She did not follow his work. She was listless about his achievements. She was gracious with his friends, but they ran out of things to say to her in less than a minute. She was an indifferent hostess. She was wretched with a quip, a hopeless storyteller. Her only point of interest was her wan, shadowed, shut-in beauty. An ex-ballerina on the last legs of consumption, was how one man put it. 
Reginald was not popular with girls. He glittered with condescending malice, which rarely warms the hearts of the fairer sex. When meeting him, they recognized his ability to provide, but tended to imagine him holding an infant by the foot at arm's length, his face averted as it peed against a wall. A few older women found him sexy in a cold, fastidious, which meant sexual stamina somehow, and mechanical way, but these women were rarely part of the social circle which could approach him. Tom was well-liked by girls and women. He was feminine to a small degree, and women sensed that his heart could be a great masculine balm to the thousand daily slights that the female soul is heir to. He will grow into a man, they thought, who will listen to the injustice of my family, the unreliability of my help. And I will be soothed through such discharge, and he will not be wounded at all by it. He will absorb it like a sail swallows wind, and we shall both move on thereby. Tom had a pleasant way of teasing girls, of puncturing their vanities with gentle humor. Also, the more intuitive among them saw that under still remaining baby fat, a lean and dynamic profile was slowly emerging. And his eyes were most attractive. They could cry, which for women is not a bad thing, unless it stems from weakness or self-pity. They could also absorb, which is essential for women, who often feel more than their own frames can contain. And, and, of course, there was a kind of sadness deep within Tom's young heart. It had all the soft welling of having been wronged, but having never retaliated. Beyond it was a great lake of gentle need. For a surprisingly large number of women, this was pure ambrosia.